Welcome to Just to Know You, the podcast that interviews regular people at SAES and finds out they are far from regular. That's right. I'm your host, Darian Batten. And I'm Angela Kerskadden. Let's get started. All right. Well, it's awesome to have you here, Mr. Jacobson. First question, how did your journey begin? My journey overseas began... uh, Pretty early. I guess it began in, in 1971 when I was born. I was born in Thailand. My, my parents were working in, in Thailand, uh, doing work for the United States government. And uh, so that's where I was born. And until I went back to the United States for, um, for high school, in boarding school, that was the first time I lived what would be considered kind of full-time in the United States. So was uh, was kind of international for, from a young age. My parents moved to Saudi Arabia, working in, in Saudi Aramco uh, in uh, 1975. So I, I was three, just about to turn four uh, when we moved uh, at the corner of, uh, I believe it was Holmes and and Third Street is where, where our house was. The Dahran Hills did not exist uh, at all. And uh, so that's that that's kind of what started. I've always been uh, an international child. In fact, the probably the most exotic thing that I felt that I've done was uh, living in the United States when I, I went to university in North Carolina, uh, where I had no experience with that. That felt like a real adventure for me. Uh, but growing up in Saudi Arabia felt that was normal. That's that's what all my friends did, too. So that's what felt normal. How do you think that has impacted your your worldview as um, it's seemingly the place that you are connected to through passport and um, through documents and really uh, that you're associated with is not the place that is deemed, quote unquote, your home? How does that shape how you view home, how you view the world and things of that nature? Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, third culture kids, when I first heard that term after I became an educator, really resonated. And I was like, aha, yes, that I, I experienced all of those things. And I think uh, one of the things, you know, when I, when I think about uh, friends that I made in, in high school or in university who had these really deep kind of well-established senses of, of their roots and where their home is uh, centered on a, on a physical place, which was, uh, was not the case with me, uh, even though I ended up coming back here to work, uh, that's that's uh, not the norm. You know, there are a certain number of people who do come back after going through the school here, uh, but the norm, of course, is not. And and at the time, uh, when I left in uh, in 1986 was when I graduated the ninth grade uh, from Saudi Aramco schools, then it was known that no one comes back. To get into Saudi Arabia was very difficult. Uh, so there were no tourist visas visitor visas were very difficult to get and you had to have like a very clear immediate family sponsor and so everyone knew that the point at which you your family separated from aramco you were never coming back and so everyone just sort of knew that uh there also were not the the same local high school options so all of the people i was growing up with we knew that after ninth grade we were all going to scatter and and go our our different ways and and i remain in contact with with some people, but even then, when we were growing up here, everyone was just really clear on this is not anyone's forever home uh, as expatriate employees here, 
And so I think that's one of the things is that I, uh, you know, when I think of home, uh, it's around people. It's, you know, where, uh, you know, my family happens to be gathered and it's not connected to a, a physical place. There's, there's none of that sense of, of roots. And I think for my, my siblings as well, uh, that's pretty well evident because, uh, you know, we ended up going all over the globe um, in, in, different, uh, in different job roles. But none of us went back to both of my parents. They came from small town Wisconsin. So they had that growing up. And that's right where they went back to when they left Aramco. Um, but uh, none of us did. We, we got all, uh, all over the globe. And for a while, my parents tried to uh, sort of follow us around a little bit and stay close. But, uh, but we kept moving. So they ended up just going back to, uh, to Wisconsin and, and settling down. So I think that's the biggest one is when I think of home, uh, it is around uh, family, where family happens to be at that moment. Uh, and it's not connected to a, a physical, it's not connected to a physical place. That's always something that sort of fascinated, that always fascinated me growing up and, and even now. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that you were a, a third culture kid. Um, when initially you went to university, did you go into education right away or did you kind of find your way into it? And what brought you to, to your educational path? My initial aspiration was uh, to be an astronaut, and uh, I had to set that aside pretty pretty early. And uh, and then engineering was what grabbed me. I I loved the idea of of building and solving things. And I think the the you know one of the things, even though the movie came out a little bit later, but it sort of captured the essence of why engineering grabbed me. Is uh, there's the movie Apollo 13 about the mission to the moon, and they have this this mishap and, and you've got the, the astronauts up in space, but then this ground team and they have to figure out how to, to get this, this crew back. And there's a scene in the movie where they've got a challenge of the, the device to remove carbon dioxide from the air is damaged. And so they've, the, that's going to be fatal if they can't resolve it. And so they, they know exactly everything that's in the spacecraft and they bring it in and they dump it in front of the engineers and they say, we've got 10 hours or whatever to, to use this to get this thing done. And, and I remember seeing that saying, that is amazing. Like that is what I would love to, to do. And so, uh, so I had this kind of romanticized idea about uh, engineering and, uh, and numbers and science, you know, was always something that, that, you know, was pretty straightforward and, and, and I, I, uh, I, I enjoyed in school. Uh, so I ended up going into engineering school uh, as, my, as my first piece. And I even worked just a year out of college uh, in some engineering uh, type jobs. But while I was in college for summer, uh, the same school that I went to as a student, so I had lots of connections there, they would run a summer school uh, program. And in the summers, I would go and work in that summer school program. So that was sort of my, my entry onto that side. And, and by the time I was a senior in college, they were just giving me the keys to the van that had a trailer full of canoes. And I was running the outdoor uh, discovery program, which was just that my summers were the highlight of my, of my year. And uh, so after that, that four out of college, the, the economy wasn't great. And, and the reality of, of the work I was doing did not match that, that intensity and creativity of, uh, of the uh, Apollo 13 movie and so I ended up calling, calling up the, the school I had, I had both gone to 
and then had worked in the summers just to explore options. And, and they did have a, a spot as a math teacher for me. And so I, I jumped into there. I did not have a teaching certification. It was a private school, so that wasn't required. So uh, it was a good thing I had worked there because they kind of were taking a chance on me. But, uh, but I think I was kind of a known quantity for them. So, uh, so it paid off. And then it was on uh, the first day of new staff orientation that I met my future wife, uh, Crystal Jacobs. And so that's, that's what kind of started that, that journey. And education agreed with me and, and I, I stuck with it and ended up going back into to university and getting my, my teaching certificate. And uh, yeah, that's how that journey started. But engineering was kind of my first love and was my first trajectory. Uh, but it was those summers that were the highlight of my year that, uh, that drew me into to education. How do you think that engineering perspective um, still exists in the way that you view education today? Does it still linger or have you completely forsaken your first love for in your <laughs> role that you have now? No, I, I think I still find ways to do that. I, I love to tinker. And uh, so, so that's one of my, my outlets. You know, I think back, that was maybe five, six years ago. Uh, my, my daughter and I uh, built a 3D printer kind of from scratch, which, which was a lot of fun. About half the time was, was spent building it. We had plans. It wasn't like we were inventing something, but half the time was spent building it. And then the, the other half of the time was just kind of calibrating it so it could put out halfway decent uh, prints. So I think I found outlets like that. But, you know, another one is uh, after six years in, in the Dalia, uh, in, in the classroom and being tech facilitator there, uh, I moved to the district office as the, the technology uh, coordinator for the district. And that gave me a lot of opportunities for creative problem solving, not of the same, you know, maybe urgency as the Apollo 13 things, but certainly things like, hey, we've got this situation and here's what we have. We only have these things. Here are the limitations. We can't do this. We can't do that because of whatever parameters. How are we going to make this work? And we encountered uh, a lot of those. You know, one that I would maybe highlight is, uh, you know, right now our, our students walk around campus and, and we've got a, a really nice Wi-Fi system uh, that's very device friendly. It's, it's, it's beautifully set up. If you look at the actual devices, they're enterprise grade devices. It's great. But that's not how we started. Um, you know, Saudi Aramco Patriot Schools was a little bit late to the one to one game. And one of the challenges there was around network. Uh, access and we had both kind of the the corporate uh, considerations on data protection and and uh, you know tracking uh, access and and the different requirements they they had and uh, and then also just the 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 pace you know Ramco is a very methodical company you know with lots of controls so they don't do things really fast and so you know knowing that we probably had a two year time frame before we were going to get something that was like enterprise grade ready and were we were we ready to wait two more years and we kind of decided no so how are we going to do it and we across all of the campuses we used open source software uh coupled with they're called e900s we were buying them off the shelf at jareer uh for under 100 reals a pop and we would wipe them clean and install a, a linux a Linux operating system on them and, and integrate them with our open source proxy servers. And we had a row of computers here that were serving as the proxy servers and it worked pretty well. 
it worked surprisingly well for for uh, for sort of how MacGyver it it was. But we got through with that for for two years, and we were doing map testing on it. And so, you know, people as they were bringing their their students in with laptops, and we were able to get that going. It was a really good feeling just knowing the creative team that I was working with and the problems we solved. And I think that uh, that that was kind of an Apollo 13. No one's life was at stake, but but there but there were things that were at stake. We wanted to be able to move forward and and give the best experience we could for our, our students. And we found a way to do it that matched all the the parameters and the guidelines. Uh, we didn't cut corners, but we were doing it with. Uh, E900s and and duct tape and and Linux routers, uh, so so yeah, it was a real real success story and, and one of the highlights of uh, I think that engineering spirit uh, that uh, I like to think I still have. Um, when you were you were back in the states and and you met Crystal and did you always know that you wanted to again go international or was it something that just kind of came up and you jumped onto an opportunity? How did that come where you decided to come back to Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's an interesting question. I don't think I always knew. I, you know, I think when you're, when you're mid twenties, you probably don't really know anything, right? In a lot of ways, you're just kind of taking the days as they come. And, and uh, you know, of course being a new teacher, Right, it, it's such a, a demanding time because you don't really have a sense of what needs a lot of attention and what doesn't. And so, at least for me, I ended up putting a lot of attention attention on everything, and uh, was was kind of running myself uh, ragged. And so, it was after uh, working at the school. It was a boarding school in Minnesota. It was after working there for several years, where you know we would teach during the day, and then you know the evenings tended to be pretty full because you're working in a boarding school environment, and then the very very late evenings. I'm trying to get ready for the next day. Uh, and it was a lot to sustain. And we got to the point where we were thinking, is this, is this really what we're going to, to stick with? You know, of course, there were people who had been at the school for 30, 40 years. So some people did it. But uh, we started asking ourselves, is that, is that our story? You know, I had been living in the United States then through my, my university and a little time after that. And then uh, you know, several years of teaching. So that was uh, that was a long time to be somewhere. I still knew people. My parents were still back here at the time. They were just getting ready to, to retire. But they said, you know, Saudi Ramco is always hiring teachers. And uh, so I, I talked to um, my old industrial arts teacher, who at the time was the technology coordinator, a job I would, would later have. And, and he advised us to take a look. So we looked internationally and Saudi Arabia was not kind of at the top of our list. Uh, you know, I knew for Crystal, you know, just being a woman in Saudi Arabia at the time isn't isn't for everyone. Uh, you know, has some constraints that you've got to be uh, you got to be open to. It's great experiences, but it's also something that that, um, you know, takes some getting used to. Right. So it wasn't necessarily at the top of our list. But when we went to a job fair in Iowa, it was between that and a school in Thailand. Uh, that was just opening. And, and we went with Saudi Aramco and we said we were going to try it for a couple of years. And, and then if we didn't like it, uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get stuck here and we would go and, and see lines, other right? places. We'll just be in it for a couple yeah. Of years. <laughs> but, you know, uh, from the very outset, I just loved it. I was hired as a math teacher. And when I arrived in, in Adelia, and I, I just finished my university program. So I, I arrived in Italy in May because they were ready to bring me on just as soon as I was 
I was ready and I, I wasn't under contract anywhere. And so, so Crystal followed uh, uh, about six weeks later after she finished her contract. But I arrived in May, which back then with the school year and the intercession, our school year is to go until the end of July. So this was only about, you know, a little more than halfway through this, the school year. So there was still a lot of, of time left. Uh, I guess a little more than half, but there's still a lot of time left in the year. And uh, it was when I met the principal on day one that I, I found out I was going to be the technology facilitator. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, fair enough. This is, this is cool. But that's one of the things that I appreciated from the outset is, uh, is the, the trajectory I've had through Saudi Ramco has given me routinely fresh vistas to explore. And so even though I worked here 23 years, which can sound like I'm in a rut, I've never really felt that. I've always felt, even when I was technology coordinator for, I guess that was 15 years, I feel like within that, I had several different jobs depending on what the nature of the needs were. That when I first came in, everything was locked down, it was handled by IT, and we only worried about educational technology. And then you have the cyber attack and now information protection and cybersecurity is really important. That's kind of a new job. We were building our own networks. That became a, a new job. We were hosting our own information systems. That became a new job. So I always felt that that there was always something new. And uh, and every you know five years or sometimes more frequently, I would get put into a position where I would feel like I'm a novice again and I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. And, uh, and just keep me in that learning mode, which I think is really, really, at least important for me with engagement is to feel like I've got a real good challenge in front of me and that it's not, uh, it's not rote work or, or anything like that. So it's been a great trajectory. Um, you know, I think there, there maybe are some people with Saudi Ramco who, who sort of get stuck here because of the, the financial package or, uh, you know, uh, they, they want to make sure that they're meeting other goals, but uh, but for me, I don't know that that figured into it. I think the the quality of the work environment and the quality of the colleagues I've had has been really what's uh, what's driven me uh, over the years and and has just kept me so excited about working here. Those twenty three years have been filled with uh, so many experiences. Is there one experience, whether a professional or personal, that really sticks out to you? Oh, uh, so 23 years. Yeah, it's a long time. So, you know, both my, my children were born here. And, you know, I think uh, for, for people who start families, you know, those are really, you know, especially your first child is a real important milestone. You know, a lot of things uh, change. And uh, so, so those really stand out, um, you know, where, where my life changed. And I, I went from being Kind of a, a husband is my identity to to a, a father, still husband, but uh, you know suddenly that father comes in and that's that's an important one. Uh, so I think that is is a a pretty uh, a pretty important one. If we think about uh, education role, you know, there's probably a few things. I don't know if this is true of everyone, but I could probably point to a few kind of pivotal moments that that were really important for me, even though at the time they might've seemed a little bit small. And, uh, and one I might share is happened in, in Italy. And this was, I, I hadn't been here that long. Uh, and I was tech, tech facilitator Udalia, but I also was teaching the eighth and ninth grade mathematics. So I was, I was in the classroom as well. 
And the math textbook they had was pretty reading intensive. And I hadn't experienced that before. Math textbooks I'd used before uh, had problem sets and you know some example problems worked out, uh, but they didn't have paragraphs of text that were meant to be consumed. So it was a little bit new and, and interesting uh, to me, and and but it, but it felt compelling, and so I I I dove in and I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into this and you know make reading part of of this instruction. So they had some vocabulary words were bolded and. And uh, I asked the students to take the bold vocabulary words as part of their homework, and they would write those down and, and kind of define the words, make sure they had, had pulled those out. And I was pretty chuffed with myself. I thought, you know, look at me trying something new. Uh, and the, uh, the curriculum coordinator at the time uh, stopped by for a visit. And, uh, and naturally, me being chuffed when they came in, I, I showed them uh, what I was doing with, with reading. And they were actually thoroughly unimpressed. <laughs> and they, they said to me, she said to me, she said, well, the good news is you're, you're not hurting anyone. You're not doing any harm. And, and I remember it was, it, was, uh, it was almost a little bit like a slap. It was like, you know, wait a second. You know, I went from being chuffed to, to something that kind of felt like a rebuke. And it wasn't. She said it kindly. But, uh, but it wasn't the script I was ready for. The script I was ready for was... Wow, Ben, that's great. You're that's excellent. You, you're trying something new, and uh, so so I had to think on that just a little bit, and uh, and then I ended calling her calling her back and saying, okay, so how should I be doing it? And uh, and she gave me some some tips around helping students read, and uh, and I started using the SQ3R model of the survey question read recite review, and and it really did make a difference. And the, the reason that that's transformative is it was one of the first times where someone gave me the gift of knocking me out of, of both my comfort zone, but also kind of the prism, uh, the prison of my own experience that I had experienced math education a certain way. Uh, when I went to teacher preparation in uh, university program, it kind of reinforced that. And I never really thought critically about it very much. And so I was just repeating those things. And it was the first thing that sort of nudged me out of that. And, and I could step back and sort of look at, the, at the, the practice. So that was an incredible gift. And I think that idea of being able to step out of your practice, not be attached to it, and be ready to let it go and try something else if that something else proves to be better, uh, of that always being open to a better mousetrap, uh, I think has, has really made all the difference for me over the years. You know, the other insight that I had not too long after when my eyes opened up a bit more to some of the craft of teaching, not so much the content of teaching, but the craft of teaching, was elementary classroom teachers had such deep craft in Udalia, it just blew me away. I then the next year I got put on an accreditation study with an elementary literacy team, and I came out of each of those just with pages of notes. And I would take that back, whether it was anecdotal records or, or different uh, approaches. Yeah, it was really amazing when I sort of went outside of math instruction and started looking at everyone else's craft and seeing the the transferability. Um, that was great. So I think those are some of the professional ones that were really transformative. 
And I think even though in the moment they were pretty small and I didn't recognize the impact they would have, you know, over the last 23 years, I keep going back to those those things. And and that that one comment that that curriculum coordinator made that nudged me outside my comfort zone, you know, really uh, has had huge echoes. And I don't think probably either one of us recognized it. Uh, what I appreciate about your story is how long ago that happened. And it was obviously impactful because you're still thinking about it today. So that's, that's very cool. When you, I don't you know if you like do a gratitude kind of practice, or if sometimes you just think about gratitude, what are some things in your life that you seem to always kind of come back to and, and be grateful for? Yeah, well, you know, I'll be honest, I'm grateful for Aramco. You know, both growing up, I think Aramco afforded me uh, uh, an excellent uh, education for one, but also a wonderful environment to grow up in, you know, a very safe, uh, open kind of free range environment within within the camp. But uh, that I, I think uh, I'm very grateful for. And then it was grateful for that for my own children uh, to have that same that same experience of of just children being able to be children out in the evening. Uh, you know, we used to say to our kids, be back at dark o'clock um, and, and they could run around the neighborhood and we didn't have to worry. Aramco in, in its in investment in me, Aramco in the sport for my family, Aramco in the, the environment, both my parents that I experienced as a child, but then as an employee. So definitely grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful for the people that I've worked with. You know, one of the things uh, I, I share you know, fairly often, I think, because I think it's striking, is that I think every year I've worked in Saudi Aramco, I felt like this is the best group of people I have ever worked with in my career. And I've never spent a year thinking, oh, five years ago, that was a great team. It's always felt like, wow, this just keeps getting better and better. And so I'm really deeply uh, grateful for for that. You know, uh, the the ability to, to travel, uh, I think is wonderful. The, the ability to have security, that uh, we've got a wonderful home in the United States that you know we don't feel compelled to rent out or anything like that. It's just there when we get some time off, we get to go there and, and be at our happy place by the, the lake. And, and that's not something that I think every educator can afford that kind of thing. So really grateful uh, for that, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, professionally, in terms of the environment, in terms of the people I, I work with, I really feel like I've, I won the lottery. You sound like you've maintained um, such a heart for people um, living within a transient community, which can sometimes be very difficult because people are coming and going. Um, how have you done that, being able to, you know, loved and lost and continue to love? Um, and what daily habits maybe do you have that allows you to continue having a heart for people? even though, you know, love and loss, loss have existed? That's an interesting question. You know, I think, uh, I think being present is, is a big one. I think having, having good work in front of you is important for that uh, as well. Keeps you from thinking too much about the, the people who aren't there, I think. So I think, I think that's, that's important. You know, I think uh, another one is always, always Thinking about people's perspective, I think I do that quite a fair bit with with the people I, I work with, and I think about um, you know how how are they seeing this right now, uh, you know what are they seeing as as uh, you know the the beneficial outcome. Uh, just trying to put myself in their shoes, I think has been helpful. 
But, you know, when you raise the idea of, of uh, transience um, and people coming and going, one of the nice things about Aramco is, is I think it's a bit more stable than a lot of environments, which has been nice. Um, but in some ways, that only makes it harder when someone you've worked with, say, for eight years or 10 years uh, leaves. So that, that does make it difficult sometimes. But uh, I think having, having good work in front of you and having faith in the, the people around you and, uh, and being able to lean on each other is what, what makes for a good work environment and I think helps navigate those, those pieces. You know, the other one that's, that's kind of nice is in today's age of, of social media and other ways, like it's, you know, people aren't gone in the same sort of way. It's a lot easier to sort of t- stay in touch with people and, and stay connected you know, even if it's somewhat passive, you know, where you kind of seeing what's going on in their lives and Facebook, you still kind of feel a, a connection uh, there. So I think that helps with some of those, you know, when you, you mentioned kind of love and loss that, uh, you know, if you think 20 years ago where those things weren't weren't available and things maybe had more of a, a finality to them. And, and now it just it changes to a different rhythm because there's so many digital tools to, to stay in touch with people. We've talked a lot about kind of like your past and uh, where you've come from. My question is, what is in the future? What is some some hopeful dreams, aspirations, goals, ideas about what's what's to come? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Well, you know, I'm, you know, just uh, probably not even two months into the new role uh, officially. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm still uh, getting my feet under me, even though I'm, I'm not new to Saudi Aramco. Uh, it's, a, it's a different level. And, and there's a, you know, I would say my, my, my core team is, is different now. Uh, before my core team all worked for uh, SAES. And now a lot of my core team uh, works in, in HR. And so I, I need to rely on them. Uh, to help get things done, and and then they rely on me for for help they need. Uh, so that's that's new. So uh, that puts me back in the novice mode there. Again, there's a lot of constituencies that uh, that I was sort of aware of, but but wasn't as responsible for. And so you know, one of the things is is just making sure that I can uh, keep my feet under me and make sure that that Saudi Aramco expatriate schools continues to return the value for Saudi Aramco that has sustained the amazing investment that Saudi Aramco has made in SAES that has benefited the the students, certainly, and the families. But I also also think that it benefits the the community overall, that it's a really positive influence on the the community when you've got a great school in there, even if you might be a family where your children are are outside of SAES range, or, or maybe you might not have that. I think it, it still, it uplifts the social fabric of the community. And that's something I'm, I'm eager to, to sustain because I, I think that the investment that Saudi Aramco has made in SAES over the, the past you know, 80 or so years has really returned dividends. And you know, one of my uh, primary goals is to, is to make sure we continue to shine a spotlight on that value and we continue to keep our eye on that value so that we can sustain this great this great support and great resource for for our students and and our, our families i wonder with ai and technology and all those aspects what do you see as far as education in the future and how is it going to look yeah you know that's that's a really interesting question ai 
you know, when I first, that was probably only November, so a year ago, when, uh, you know, I first started dabbling with some generative AI or, you know, some of the AI image generators that were just starting to, to come out. And when you think about, first of all, how amazing it was when you first tucked into that, but then how far it's come in, in just a year uh, is really, uh, really mind-blowing. You know, with that said, I've worked in, in educational technology a long time, and you know, we've seen things come through, whether it's access to the internet in a classroom is just going to change things and you know, it's going to be a game changer, or you know, mobile computing, or uh, you know, one-to-one laptop environments. You know, there's been you know, Web 2.0 and, and the idea of, of social. There's been all of these things that at the time made people really nervous and then had other people like, this is a game changer. This is going to change education. And I've seen a lot of those come through. I remember there was a, uh, his, his, uh, his kind of own job description was a futurist. It was a, a presentation uh, at a NISA conference uh, that I, it was my very first NISA conference in, in 2000. You know, he said in 20 years, we will not recognize schools. They, they will look totally different. It's going to, you know, the way technology is changing now is going to revolutionize everything, including schools. And, uh, and there are a lot of people like, yeah, that's totally right. You know, uh, but I, I don't think it really did. Right. You know, I think you can walk onto this campus and people want to feel like they belong. They want a human connection. Uh, you know, people need to be social to learn. You know, a lot of those kind of fundamentals don't change. So if I had a rule of thumb when one of those things comes along, those big game changers is that it probably won't catch on as fast as some people think, and it won't be as transformative as some people maybe fear. And over time, as people feel like it makes sense to them, they will begin to use it in logical ways. Uh, and I think that's held for you know most everything. And even though AI, I think, is one of the bigger ones, right? You know, if you're just thinking about waves, this is maybe a really big wave. But I think that's the same thing, is that it, it won't be uh, maybe as disruptive as some people fear, uh, and it won't be as as transformative as, as maybe some people hope, and that over time, people are going to find ways to use it that make sense to them and, and make them uh, better. So when I hear comments about you know, jobs being replaced and, and, and so on. It's a real thing. There's a lot of industries that have had that disruption um, of jobs. You know, I think education has largely resisted that because of the human nature of it. And, and no one has really kind of cracked the, the challenge. You know, if you look at it from an economics perspective, the challenge is how do you break out of the 20 to one ratio for, for a quality experience that students learn in and that parents are happy with? And if someone solves that, then economically, they're, they're going to disrupt the environment. And AI maybe has some things there, um, you know, particularly in, in skill acquisition, um, where you can have really, really individualized learning uh, with that. And for the human side of it, I don't, I don't know that I've really seen that. I think that people will still want to talk to people and uh, but when you think about, you know, maybe some of the lower level skills, even if they're very complicated, uh, the lower level skills will either become uh, trivial because, you know, you can ask your AI assistant that responds to voice commands in the room 
um, or if they're non-trivial that an AI can, can teach them. Um, so I think there will be some kind of shifting there. But for, uh, and I think uh, language arts teachers are really feeling it now because it, it kind of calls into account the, you know, the nature of writing. But as a math teacher, I, I think in, in math instruction, we went through this maybe years ago with the introduction of calculators and people saying, this is changing what mathematics is. And the reality is it just let you focus on a different kind of mathematics and you could focus more on application and reasoning and you didn't have to spend as much time on just the, the calculation operation. And then uh, language arts and writing teachers were not impacted by the calculators, but now here's a tool that is impacting them and it, and it will. But I think, uh, you know, my own take on it is it's worth keeping an eye on because it's absolutely fascinating. I love playing around with generative AI, especially the image generators. They blow me away. But I think it's not going to be as bad as people fear. And it's probably not going to be as good as people hope. Uh, but it's going to make life better and people are going to find ways to use it that, that makes sense. Um, then you have been so generous with your time. Um, I just I, I want to thank you for all this. I have one more question to kind of to wrap this up. Um, just helping us get to know you better. Who is somebody that you admire? That's, a, that's an interesting one. Who is someone that I admire? Well, I think there's a a lot of people I admire. You know, I I admire, I think, everyone who's helped me. And and I think for a lot of people who have helped me, they maybe didn't even know it. I think there's a tenant in a lot of, uh, you know, maybe Eastern philosophies um, that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. That when you're ready to learn a lesson, uh, it will, the universe will present it, uh, it to you. And so, you know, I, I think if I would pull someone out there, there was a, uh, a dean of students when I was in boarding school who, who really held me to high standards, but he also put me in some challenging roles. So he had selected me uh, to be a, a proctor in the dorm, which is kind of a dorm leadership position. And, uh, and I, was pretty, uh, I was pretty withdrawn. I was shy. Uh, I continued to be an introvert. Uh, person. I, I definitely skew on that side of the curriculum or in the continuum. Uh, but he he saw something. I don't know that that a lot of people would have saw uh, a good fit in that, uh, but he did and, and sort of gave me that chance. And, and that made a world of difference uh, to me in the opportunities. And I think I've had a whole string of those across my life of, of people who maybe took a chance on me. And uh, yeah, so Henry Cataldo was his name. And he was a pretty kind of gruff kind of person. You had to warm up to him a little bit, uh, but he had an absolute heart of gold. And, uh, and he was one of the first people that, that in my mind, my adolescent brain that was still developing, like had this cognitive uh, realization that this is a person, this is an adult who's taking a chance on me because they see something. And then that made me want to live up to that. And so I think that idea of, of seeing those things in people, uh, I, I admire that. And I did have a chance to talk with them because later I went and worked at the same school and, and I was his colleague. So I did get the chance to share some of, of the impact he had with me, thankfully. But I think for a lot of people, we just don't know the impact that we're having on other people. And so, um, you know, I don't always do it, but I do try to aspire to, to just treat, treat relationships and interactions thoughtfully because you never really know, uh, you know, where, where people are 
are ready for the universe to give them a lesson. And if you're going to be the person that does that, you want it to be a good one. Oh, that's awesome. Well, this has been so uh, wonderful to get to know you. Um, I feel like I've known you for a couple of years, but actually I didn't know a lot about you. So this has been uh, super interesting and we really, really appreciate your time. I know you have got a very busy schedule. So thank you so much for meeting with us. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Just to Know You. We would like to thank our amazing tech man, Mr. Kent Arimura, Sterling McDonald for the podcast music and the SAES community. See you next time. If you know anyone who you think has a great story to tell, we would love to hear about it. Please send an email to either Angela, Darian, or Kent.